Engaging Leader, episode 33, Leading Out Loud, Why Communication is the Most Essential Leadership Skill. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. Is it true that communication is the most essential leadership skill? And if so, what are the biggest keys to leadership communication? To address that today, our guest is Terry Pierce, author of Leading Out Loud, A Guide for Engaging Others in Creating the Future. This is the best-selling guide to authentic leadership communication, and the newest edition of this book has just hit bookstores. Terry had many years of experience at IBM and Charles Schwab. He's taught leadership communication courses at Berkeley and the London Business School, and for the last couple of decades, has been coaching and consulting with CEOs and elected leaders. Terry, welcome to the Engaging Leader Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. In your book, you say that communication, specifically leadership communication, is the skill that is most essential for leaders to be effective. Why do you say that? Well, leadership, by its very definition, involves other people. And uh, the way we engage with other people is through communication. So it's almost a tautology. It seems to me that uh, it's 90% of it. The way a leader communicates with his presence or with her words or with emails or any way that communication passes back and forth, absolutely vital to success in that you're trying to inspire others. Now, I can imagine some CEOs and CFOs might say that you're exaggerating the importance of communication. For example, that, that technical competence is more important. What would you say to them? Well, I'd say they're both important, but I'd ask the two uh, two folks why the, the word chief is in their title. <laughs> <laughs> Since they're sitting at the top of an organization, I would assume that maybe 97% of the the work product that they actually put out comes through others. And uh, that, that suggests to me that uh, 97% of their job is to inspire others to do the very best they can and to keep them engaged. Now, I'm not... I'm not demeaning the idea of competence. Obviously, it's really important, uh, but there's a lot written about that. So in theory, you need both competence and connection, and it's a term that we often use. But people are pretty pretty good at competence. That's, that's why the boardroom puts them in that place in the first place. But rarely do they think about the need to connect and how to do it in a, in a thoughtful, professional, skilled manner. So competence, technical competence, really is a given or table stakes and the communication aspect of leadership is perhaps the part that's a little more uncommon. Yes, or the communication of of that part which allows you to connect with others. Now, there are plenty of CFOs and CEOs that give great PowerPoint presentations, so in a way, they're communicating, but that's communicating about competence. Is this the right thing to do? Not uh, are we inspired to do it. So it's the, it's the connection part of communication that really gets ignored. Uh, and often the competence part ends up being very dry. You know, you really don't need the human being uh, to explain a pie chart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, how would you estimate the proportionate importance of leadership communication in a leader's effectiveness on average? Well, 
you really have to remember, Jesse, that I'm like a carpenter with a hammer. Uh, everything looks like a nail to me. <laughs> so <laughs> I would say it's a, it's, it's a very, very high proportion. I won't say it's all of it, but it's a very, very high proportion. Uh, people who, who don't inspire others to work for them. I mean, obviously, this is a, there's a continuum here. There are really competent folks who really belong as individual contributors, and they do really well in that post. And there are other people who are extremely good at human interaction, uh, and perhaps they do well in being involved in those kinds of fields. There are very few who can actually practice both. Often we hear that a leader is a change agent, but do you say that's not true? Well, I say it's not true just to be a contrarian. I think there are a number of different distinctions that we can make about leadership communication, and this is a central one. Uh, that's become a cliche, you know, that a, a leader is a change agent, and that's what a board would look for if they're looking to appoint a leader, or it's what uh, people would look for inside of an organization if they're looking to put someone in charge of a particular function. Uh, is the person entrepreneurial? Uh, have they dealt with change before? Can they generate change? But if you looked at a thousand psychological studies on the element of change, you'd find that 990 of them conclude that people hate change. It can be disconcerting. It can, uh, it can upset folks. It, it takes away a sense of security. Uh, on the other hand, if you looked at those same studies, you'd find that uh, 100% of people love progress. So what we refer to as change uh, is really transformed into progress through the communication of the leader. Uh, progress is something that we move toward that we want. It's a state that uh, we desire. And we have to perform certain actions to get from here to there. It's like transformation is a much better word than change because it carries with it the substance of moving forward, having some future that's desirable. So that's my argument with the word change and the, and the term change agent. And you, in the book, often you use the term in place of change agent, you'll say creator of progress. Yes, I prefer that. If someone else wants to come up with some better way to say that, would be terrific. <laughs> well, I do like that because it does require the leader to put on certain glasses and just think about, as I share this vision with others, how do I create the context so they can see this as progress the way that I do? Because in absence of that, I suppose they're just going to see it as change and probably negative change. Yeah, people who are, as we may talk about context a little later, but a leader, uh, you just you just mentioned that one of the primary responsibilities is to actually use the imagination and be able to see the future that others can't see, and then to be able to explain that in a way that's visceral, uh, not just explain it, but to convey it in a way that's visceral to the people who are going to join him, who are going to live in that future with him. That's a talent that uh, has to be developed, and it's a point of view, it's a way of looking at things that isn't normal for someone that's used to just pulling levers and having the train go where it goes. Years ago, a teacher of mine used that metaphor, and I've liked it ever since, that most people as we go through life are like we're riding on a train and we're looking out one side at the scenery, and when we don't like it, we go over to the other side and we look out there uh, and see how that is. And then there's always someone who has his hands on the levers or her hands on the levers that is actually running the engine. But the leader is neither one of those. The leader is out front laying new track. They're looking for new places to go and places where we can move this engine uh, into a future that's a lot more desirable for all of us. Now, it's an interesting picture that you paint there. One of the things about your book early on that made me realize this was going to be different from other books on this topic was that you say that leadership communication begins with 
personal awareness of a discovery of what matters to you personally as a leader? Why do you say that? Well, because the central element in leadership that I'm I'm emphasizing, and it's not the only one. Again, I want to I want to emphasize that you know competence and is very important. Business aptitude, obviously, in the business world, very very important. We don't want to follow someone up the hill that's never fired a rifle. So it's very important that someone's competent. But that's as you said, those are table stakes. That's the coin of the realm. What I wanted to emphasize here was, what is it that builds trust? What is it that the leader can communicate that will actually inspire other people? So I emphasize that. And uh, in order to build trust, one has to share of themselves. You can only do that if you know who you are. So the first step to me is self-awareness. Now, I'm not alone in, in advocating that. You know, there are several books about leadership that start there. Bennis was probably the first to advocate it. But I've been really interested lately in really good leaders uh, coming to this conclusion and coming forward with it. Jobs was one who, as you know, in his famous, now famous graduation speech at Stanford, laid that out in in, uh, brilliant terms about the four things that drove him, that were most important to him in life, and how hooking those four things together allowed him to understand and, and live life in a fuller way and to inspire people around him. One of those was that you have to love what you do. And uh, he was quite open about that. So I think a certain amount of introspection is vital for people to be able to deploy themselves in a way that others will trust them. Speaking of, of Steve Jobs, I, I love in the book how you contrast Steve with his successors at Apple, Michael Spindler and Gil Emilio, and how they really were, were never able to make the transition as leaders there because they, they never really identified how their values, their personal values, fit with what Apple was doing. But when Steve came back after many years away, he was able to make that transition. And why, why is that? Well, he stepped right back into it because the fundamentals had been maintained by Scully. Jobs was able to come back into Apple and have the instant impact because it never lost his personality. Scully was able to keep it. That is, he, he was able to appreciate who Jobs was and how important he was. As you recall, it was the board that fired Jobs, uh, you know, not Scully. But Scully himself was not a gifted designer. Uh, he was an engineer as a tinker, but not really as a designer the way Jobs was. And when Scully, for example, introduced the Newton, it fell flat because it didn't have that job-like magic to it. Uh, That's what Steve kept uh, bringing back to the table. It was who he was. It was his sense of beauty and order, what made him love calligraphy, and what made him become a fruitarian in the first place and kind of a kook. (laughs) These were all of the characteristics of Jobs' personality and character that that he imbued into an organization that has never really, you know, fortunately got that back. Now, Now, Spindler and Emilio, I will speak frankly, I don't think either of them had a clue about what I just said. I think Scully did. You know, if you remember, it was it was Jobs that recruited Scully, and he recruited him uh, purportedly with a famous line in New York at a restaurant when Scully had said no twice. Scully, as you recall, was president of Pepsi-Cola at the time, and uh, purportedly Jobs said, John, if you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, go ahead. I'm going to change the world, and that was that sealed the deal. So I think Scully came into Apple knowing full well the import of what he had his hands on, while Spindler and Emilio were really more operators. They were looking, and the board was looking, for financial expertise. I don't think they ever looked uh, at this conversation we're having 
uh, and gave any import to it, and they made two bad choices as a result. So both John Scully and Steve Jobs could realize that Apple actually stood for values that they personally believed in. Yes, and they had a strong enough personal connection that Steve was actually able to infect Scully. You know, a second example of that that's probably more well-known today is that of Howard Schultz, who, as you know, was the, while he wasn't the founder of Starbucks, he certainly bought it and uh, put it on the map and made it what, it what it was for a number of years, and then came back and rejuvenated it when it went, uh, went south. Uh, I, I think he's even a more interesting case because he's very verbal about the values that he had that caused him to uh, create Starbucks the way he did. If anyone wanted to read the story, it's in his first book called uh, Pour Your Heart Into It, where he relates uh, that he grew up in the, in the Bronx and as a 10-year-old boy watched his father go from job to job and eventually broke a leg and was out of work and was laying on the couch. And as uh, Schultz put it, it was something like beaten down by life. He'd had a series of jobs at that point. Schultz's father was driving a truck that delivered and picked up diapers and his mother was, um, you know, taking an ironing from the neighborhood, and that's how they made a life. But uh, he said that, that that vision of his father, you know, kind of burned out by life, lying on the couch with his leg up in a cast, really impacted him. And that he remembers saying to himself that he said, I had no idea that I'd ever run anything big or have an opportunity, but I did decide that if I ever had an opportunity, I would never leave anybody out. Now, that was a value that was formed by an image that came straight out of Schultz's heart and never left him. And of course, he was the first person to get the SEC to agree to give ownership rights to part-time employees. So he's kept that value strong, um, as well as his value of, of customer uh, loyalty and service uh, all through his career and continues to do it to this day. It's been a huge value for him to keep people involved in what's going on and, and build a sense of community. Yes, not only his uh, employees, but also his customers, right? So he just went through a major remodel of more of the stores uh, to include more space for more people to have conversations. It's a very strong value of his, and uh, he's making that company a reflection of his own values. That's, again, why I think it's so important for anyone who aspires to lead to know who they are, to understand what drives them, and to be able to articulate that in the context of of the business. Well, that's a great story of what's helped make Starbucks so successful. Mm -hmm. Now that discovery and clarification of personal values, that of course requires a lot of introspection and time that a lot of leaders are not not willing to take. But you point out in your book that that does not guarantee success, that the primary distinction between a leader, number one, and then number two, someone who just merely gets results is the ability to relate to others in a way that inspires them, which of course requires emotional intelligence. And you provide a definition for emotional intelligence that I had not seen before. Will will you share that with us? Sure. You know, like you, I began reading about emotional intelligence when Daniel Goldman published the original book, uh, and I was fascinated by it. But I always had trouble uh, explaining it. So through the years, as I've recognized the importance of it to, to leadership communication, I've tried to simplify it. And the way that I describe it now is that it it really has to do with recognition, regulation, resonance, and response. So those four things, remember those, we can practice them, will take us a long way down the road. So recognition is really being able to recognize your own emotional landscape. Now, there are many people that can't do that. And in fact, in the original volume, 
uh, Goldman actually says that women do this a lot better than men. And I, I think then he, he modified that in later work to suggest that that feminine urge is much stronger. And in fact, in the original book, I think in the appendix, he identifies 150 different emotions, separate emotions. And in the narrative in the book, he claims that men can identify three, and that's if you include hungry. So his, his, his point was that uh, it's more difficult because men at that time, of course, tended to be more operational. And we tend to overlook the development of our emotional brain, which, of course, is how most decisions are made. So recognizing our own emotional landscape is the first uh, idea. The second is to be able to regulate it. That is to recognize when we're becoming angry or becoming sad or whatever the emotion is and be able to regulate it so that we can have an opportunity to have an interaction with someone else that includes that emotion but doesn't isn't dominated by it. Uh, the third then is being resonant, which is really the ability to demonstrate empathy. You know, can you understand or can you perceive the emotion of other people and can you resonate with that? The term limbic resonance is a, is a good one to remember. It really has to do with emotional resonance or empathy and it was coined by uh, some friends of mine here uh, in San Francisco, psychiatrists as well as uh, neurobiologists. That is, you're resonating with others. We see this at work, for example, at a rock concert. You know, uh, the more people that are there, the more excited they, they get, the more excited we get. That's a gross example of uh, a resonance. But it really is an empathetic response. And then finally, the last one is response. And by response, I'm contrasting that to reaction. Because most of us, when we are in an emotional realm, have a tendency to react out of that instead of having the wherewithal to take a breath, uh, to uh, observe ourselves, and then to respond appropriately instead of reacting. You share a story in the book regarding patents, and I thought it did a great job of taking all four of those aspects of emotional intelligence and kind of making it simple with this idea of showing the math. It was the report uh, of a quarter's performance, and he had six or 700 people listening from around the world. He happened to be broadcasting from the East Coast. Um, and he, he went on, made the report, and then at the end of his presentation, he asked uh, his charges to do certain things. Now, this was a technical company, so one of the things he asked them to do was to be sure that they were emphasizing the creation of new intellectual property in the company that would give them competitive advantage. In other words, he wanted to see them applying for more patents. And uh, engineers love to hear that. Well, at the end of the presentation, when he asked for questions, someone in Texas uh, said, you know, we got a, a note from the corporate staff uh, this last week that uh, said specifically that we were going to spend less money defending patents that we have. How does that square with what you just said? And uh, my client shot back immediately, the, the corporate office doesn't run the business, we do. <laughs> And he got, of course, a rousing uh, ovation from the people that were in attendance and a lot of noise on the telephone. Later on, he and I debriefed that. Now, the fact is that this guy was really one of the top four officers of the company and obviously uh, had eyes to go even higher. Um, and in today's, in today's world, that, you know, we'd call that a reaction. But in today's world, we don't get a second chance at that because information travels so fast. So it would be predictable that whoever wrote that memo on the corporate staff 
heard about that episode probably less than a day after it happened. And that would have an impact on my client's reputation and the corporate staff, might have uh, repercussions elsewhere, perhaps with his peers. Um, so as we began to look at that, he, he began to see that maybe he could have used a more reasoned response as opposed to a reaction. And we went through uh, an exercise of framing that out, what that would look like. For example, it was, it was for financial tough times, and uh, he knew that. Uh, perhaps a better response would have been, you know, I don't know who wrote that memo, but let me just uh, say that we're we're all trying to minimize expenses, and I'm imagining that that's happening in the corporate staff as well. Um, certainly, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of patents that we hold and are defending that are no longer useful to us as a competitive advantage. It would be senseless of us, particularly in these times, to continue to defend those patents. So decreasing our effort or decreasing our outlay to defend those patents makes absolute sense in today's environment. Uh, and that has nothing to do with the urgency of creating new intellectual property to increase our competitive advantage in the future. So both positions actually make sense. Now, that would have been a more reasoned response, but he would have had to have defeated his own defensiveness in a split second, actually it's about 200 milliseconds, <laughs> in order to expect that kind of a response. So that's what I mean by um, developing the capability to respond rather than react. But even just taking a breath, I, and I like the way you did that, you, you basically were letting him do a little bit of thinking out loud. And as he said, I, I don't know what's behind that, but I can imagine. And some of those type of phrases gives yourself a little bit of time to think and as you say in the book he's he's basically showing the math he's he's showing people the the thought process that he's going through and so even though you may not have incredible skill or very specific skill on the spot in recognizing and regulating and resonating and responding as you said, people can see your heart as you, if you're willing to show the math like that, and you actually can build trust even though you may be a little bit awkward about it in the moment. Yes, exactly. In fact, that uh, phrase in this context was actually coined by a, a woman named Judith Honesty about eight or ten years ago who uh, works for my corporate partner, Blessing White, or did at the time. And uh, she used the analogy that if anybody took you know math in the United States, they they know if they got up to algebra that uh, you know you had a proposition to solve that was given to you by the teacher, and then there was a result that was the correct answer, but you had to show all of the steps in between uh, the original problem and the result. And if you showed that math and you didn't get the answer, but the steps were all correct, maybe you just made an arithmetic error inside of the equation or something like that, but you got the process correct then, you know, what happened? And, of course, the answer is that you get partial credit. And credit is from the same root as credito or credibility or trustworthiness. So showing the way you got uh, a, a result uh, gives you a lot of trust, uh, even if people don't agree with the result. Yeah, that's a great analogy. So once you've laid the groundwork in building loyalty and trust, especially using emotional intelligence, in your book, you talk about a few ways that leaders can connect with people and actually create connections that inspire people to action, that go beyond just motivating, but actually inspire people to action. What, what are some of those key 
ways that leaders can do that? It actually are all of the devices that tap into the limbic brain or the emotional brain. Now, again, I, I just want to emphasize so that people don't get the wrong idea. I'm, I'm not suggesting that competence isn't necessary, that data isn't necessary. It's absolutely essential. We have to be competent. We have to know what the figures are. But when we're communicating with people in a way that we want to inspire them, there are other devices that we can use that are far more effective. For example, you know, just image and symbol our ways. Uh, we know that uh, that an image of something conveys not just the denotative power, but the connotative power. One of my favorite examples is, is um, I think it was Monsanto that was that really wanted to suggest that uh, we, we minimize pesticides in oranges. And, uh, you know, anybody in a boardroom might put uh, minimize pesticides in oranges as words on a PowerPoint slide. But what they chose to do was to show a, a baby uh, holding an orange uh, with the peel still on and the peel in its mouth. And uh, it, it conveys far more uh, in terms of the emotional brain than just the words themselves. So that's, that's one example. Symbols, of course, even more powerful in that we tend to go through symbols uh, into a greater meaning. Uh, you know, the difference, for example, if you were advertising, um, just say, Easter, you know, if you if you had an uh, you'd have an image or a picture of an Easter egg is is gives you one idea, but if you had uh, an image of a cross, uh, it would be symbolic. So you'd go far deeper into that, uh, into the more religious or spiritual meaning of of the uh, of the story of Easter, and of course the same is true of all religions. They use symbols in just exactly that same way. Uh, metaphor, just uh, we use that naturally. Uh, we are always reaching for the objective terms, uh, and there are good and bad metaphors. So just as long as we remember that when we use metaphor, people see themselves in it. So, for example, Scott McNeely used to used to talk about Sun Microsystems as being at war with Microsoft. Now, it's a pretty tough thing to come to work every morning and go to war. Uh, and those kinds of metaphors, the people that work there will see themselves as the soldiers they will see the CEO as the general, and they'll see the enterprise as war, and they'll see the consequences as life or death. So to continue to use military metaphors as you're trying to inspire people probably isn't going to work as well uh, as you'd like it to. You know, a second device is, of course, story. There are now uh, social scientists that are really advocating and suggesting that the human being is actually the only storytelling animal. Um, they're defining human beings as homo nerens, that storytelling being, because we all tend to live our life someplace between once upon a time and forever after. Uh, so uh, relating things with story and personal experience is really a powerful way of getting people's emotional brains engaged, even if you're telling it about the past, whether you're telling it about the past or whether you're telling it about the future, uh, offering a story that is an example of uh, some data is far greater, more powerful way uh, to communicate it. In fact, I had a friend, Jonathan Young, who was a, a psychologist and uh, frequently said that that is how he saw his job uh, was when people were coming to him troubled that they were actually saying to him, I don't like my story. And his job was to help them edit it so it would come out in a different way. The same is true of leadership initiatives. As we tell the stories that surround them, uh, we engage people where they live. So those are two devices that I like a lot. 
Those are excellent devices, and I love that, helping people edit their stories, and certainly leaders help teams create a new story for the future. Well, today we took a look at the discipline of leadership communication, the skill that is most essential for leaders to be effective. That starts with discovering personal values, deepening emotional awareness, and connecting with others through devices such as metaphor, symbol, and story. Terry Pierce, author of the new edition of the best-selling book, Leading Out Loud. Thanks for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure. It's been a fun time, Jesse. Thanks a lot. For our listeners who'd like to know more about leadership communication, Terry's book is Leading Out Loud, a guide for engaging others in creating the future. This book is the basis for graduate courses taught at universities around the world, and a corporate training course is also available around the world. In our show notes for this episode, we'll provide a link to the book and information about bringing the training course to your organization. You can find those show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 33. And while you're on the show notes page, please provide your thoughts or questions in the comments section, or you can connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Don't miss our next episode when we'll interview author and speaker Diana Booher on how to communicate with confidence in the C-suite. This is a production of Asmodale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at asmodalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.